The book of Jonah gives an unusual insight into the character of the man. His name and place of birth identify him as that prophet of Israel in the days of Jeroboam II. There can be no doubt that Jonah played a very important role in the exploits of this king, who restored the borders of Israel and brought great prosperity to the nation. The home of Jonah is said to have been a village located about four miles northeast from what was later the city of Nazareth in Galilee. He is pictured in the book that bears his name as a narrow-minded, fiercely zealous patriot. He is jealous for God and desirous of seeing the enemies of God's people destroyed. The expression of divine love for a heathen nation and of God's desire to spare it is certainly magnified as it is shown in contrast to the spirit of this pouting, as one man called him, prophet. The book of Jonah, though, differs from all others, all other books of the prophets. Jonah is one of the minor prophets. There are 12, and they're called, as you know, minor prophets because their writings were shorter, not that they weren't as important. But Jonah differs from all the other books of the prophets because it is written from primarily a historical point of view, where it gives the history of a man, the history of a nation, and lastly, and certainly not least, it tells us a great deal about God. What's interesting to me is, is all the interpretations that people have taken about this particular story. In fact, there are three interpretations. You can read them in various commentaries. Various scholars will say this and say that. I'll just suggest a few of these to you. Number one, three interpretations. Number one is the mythical interpretation. And the mythical interpretation assumes that the story is nothing more than a myth that grew up, or that grew up around some incident in the history of Israel. Secondly, there is the allegorical interpretation. And that assumes that the story is an allegory of Israel's captivity, repentance, and restoration to its land. And lastly, and certainly not least, and I believe this to be the case, and that is the historical point of view. And the historical interpretation accepts as fact that there actually was a man by the name of Jonah. He was the prophet of God. He became a preacher for God. God instructed him to go into Nineveh and cry out and preach a sermon against them, as the Bible says, for their wickedness is come up before me. That's what God said. So, the historical point of view accepts as fact that all of that happened. That he decided to depart and not do what God said. And God prepared a great fish. It swallowed the man, we know the story, spat him out on dry ground uh, after three days, and he preached to them. The historical point of view accepts as fact that all of that actually happened. Well, you know, people do a lot of quoting. When you have a position, you quote sources. So let's quote the greatest source ever and find out about this very idea. Jesus actually gives his sanction to the story because in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I want to make a little side point here. Okay? Was the great fish a whale 
or was the great fish something else and does it matter? And the reason that I ask that question is because sometimes people want to really debate about it. I got to tell you what I did years and years ago. And I used to preach this sermon in one form or the other years and years ago. I was holding a gospel meeting and I said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. I said that. And for the rest of the sermon, I referred to the great fish as a whale. And this sister couldn't wait to talk to me right after services. And right by the back door, here she comes. She said, I got to ask you something, Frank. How did the great fish become a whale? And I said, the King James Version, that's the King James Version. This is the new King James. But the King James calls him a whale. The new King James calls him a great fish. And may I say, and may I suggest, it doesn't matter. That's not really a point to be made. It was a great fish, whatever it was, and God prepared that great fish, and it swallowed Jonah. Something else about the historical interpretation. When we believe that Jesus Christ himself came to this earth of low, this low ground of sin, sickness, and sorrow, lived a life in view of his death, was nailed to the cross, was buried, and then on the third day rose again, if you believe that, then you also have to believe as historical fact the story of Jonah because Jesus said that's exactly in a likeness of what he would do. Little story was told one time. True story, by the way, I'm told. There was a little boy, he was in school, and they were talking in the classroom and the teacher tried to say that the story of Jonah was nothing more than a myth, a fairy tale. A nice child's story. Something to be in hard back form for little kids. But it didn't really happen. And the little boy standing there with all the courage that he could muster up said to the teacher said, Sir, that's not true. You are wrong. Jonah really lived and Jonah really was in the belly of that great fish. And the teacher proceeded to say it's absolutely impossible, it never happened, and so on and so forth. And finally, the little boy was so frustrated, but he stood there, he stood up from his seat, he planted his feet so courageously, and he said, I'm going to tell you, it really did happen, and when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. And the teacher thinking he really had him. The teacher said, huh, what if Jonah doesn't make it to heaven? And the little boy said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> Let's talk about the idea of being about historical accuracy. When you think about this, may I say that a book may be historically accurate. Okay. A book may be historically accurate, but not be inspired by God. But a book cannot be inspired by God and be historically inaccurate. I'll give you an example. You can go down to the library and you can get a book that has a history of anything. And it could be absolutely flawless. Somebody's recollection or a, or a group of men's recollection or women could recall something so perfectly and write it down and it be 100% historically accurate. But it doesn't mean it's inspired by God. But what about the Bible? In John 3, or, uh, 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Or the New King James says, every good work. What am I saying? I'm saying the Bible is inspired. Every aspect of the Bible is inspired. And therefore, it has to be 100% historically accurate. And may I say, the story of Jonah is in the Bible. The Bible is inspired. It's already accurate. The story is in the Bible. Therefore, the story of Jonah has to be 100% Historically accurate. Well, the story begins. I'm going to briefly narrate this story. But the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And God said, I want you to go and I want you to preach a message to the people at Nineveh. And God said the reason why. God said, because their wickedness is come up before me. Now, we don't know the reasons why that Jonah decided, I'm not going. But Jonah says, no, I'm not doing that. Jonah says, I'm going to go to Tarshish. In fact, what he does is, he goes down to Joppa, which, by the way, was the main seaport in the Holy Lands. He goes to Joppa, he gets there, and he buys his fare, and he gets on a boat, and the Bible says he goes down to the lowest part of the boat. Sometimes it's translated as the bowels of the ship, right? And he goes down into the hold of the ship, whatever you want to call it. And the Bible says he sleeps. And he slept peacefully. And he slept calmly. And do you know why he was able to do that? He was able to do that because his conscience did not bother him. I am firmly convinced in everything that we do, we are guided by our conscience. And when we have a guilty conscience, it keeps us from doing things we know we shouldn't do. So if your conscience is educated, that's a good thing. But what happens if your conscience is not properly educated? There's a lot of people, folks, a lot of people doing that which is wrong, but their conscience doesn't bother them anymore. The Apostle Paul, the greatest example of that, he said, I was in all, I was lived my whole life in good conscience until this day. And the Bible says that there were days gone by when he persecuted the church and he wasted it. So he was wrong, but his conscience didn't bother him. So what about Jonah? Jonah wasn't necessarily believing what he was doing was right. Jonah wasn't bothered about God because Jonah thought which you cannot do, he thought he could finally figure out a way to get out of eyesight or get out of the way of God. More on that a little bit later, but you can't run from God. He thought he could run from God. You know what God did? He creates this great tempest, this great storm. We know the story. The winds were blowing, and the merciless waves and tempestuous seas were beating against the ship. Where's Jonah? Sound asleep. But all the others that were on the ship, though, the sailors, they weren't asleep and they were scared for their life. 
They all had all manner of idol gods. And the Bible says that they decide, wait a minute, some god must be offended. This storm is so great, some god must be offended. So you know what they said? Let's pray to our gods. And they did, but nothing happened. The ship's captain finds Jonah down in, in the hold of the ship and says, wake up. I think the King James says it like this. Wakest thou, thou sleeper? Are you kidding me? You're going to sleep through this? He said, pray to your God. And Jonah said, after they had cast their lots, they realized Jonah was the culprit. And Jonah admits it. He said, it's my fault. I'm the reason that all of this is coming. The ship's captain says, who are you? Where are you from? What's your occupation? Who's your God? And Jonah says, I am Jonah. And he says, and I fear the Lord God, the God that created the land and the sea. And I'm the reason that all this happened. And he goes and he tells them why. God told me to go and preach against Nineveh. I didn't want to do that. So God prepared the storm. And the men said this. The men said, what can we do that the seas be made calm unto us once more? And Jonah says, you have no choice. You must take me and throw me overboard. They don't want to do it. In fact, the Bible says they rowed harder. They rowed. Didn't work. Finally, they realized we have no other choice. And they took Jonah and they cast him overboard. And we know what happened next. There are two statements, for example, two statements that happened. That sum up the rescue of Jonah. Number one, that God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And number two, Jonah was in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights. Now, when Jonah was in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights, Jonah prayed. I love the second chapter of the book of Jonah. I don't have time to go into the actual wording and all that he said in his prayer, but in your own due time, not now, pay attention to me, please. But in your own time, read the second chapter. Read the second chapter. That is a desperate man. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have used that as an example many times in life about desperate prayers. You know what we normally do when we're desperate? Me too, I've done it. What happens when we're desperate is we all of a sudden, we sit down and we start praying to God. And the first thing we do, we pour our guts out to him in supplication, begging God to make it better. Get us out of this desperate situation. And I have said that Jonah is a great example of how a man ought to pray when he's really desperate. Because you know what we usually do? Nobody's had it as bad as me. Oh, everything's going wrong in my life. It's terrible. Right? He's in the belly of a fish. That's pretty desperate. And in the second chapter of the book of Jonah, he prays a prayer that looks more like a song. It is a prayer of praise. It is a prayer of honor to God. And he goes on and on and on about it. And finally, this is what he says. Get this. He says, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, Jonah said that. 
And the Bible says that God spoke to the fish, whatever he said, and it spat Jonah out on dry ground. And some of you might remember, I know dude will because he doesn't forget stuff, but Darren would remember this. But Linwood Smith used to say, that was a man that hit the beach ready to preach. Learned his lesson, right? Notice what happens. There's two great marvels here. Two great wonders. One is the physical wonder that he actually could live for three days in the belly of a fish. I got to tell you, years ago, I heard about a guy that wrote a book. He was an author. And there was a man that actually got a book, and he, and he wrote this book, and he said, if Jonah happened to be in this particular part of the stomach, and if he actually would have been over there against whatever, and if he stayed over there, it's possible, it's possible that he would not be digested by the fish and he would be able to live. Why? Who cares? The Bible says that it happened. That should be good enough. I don't really need all of that. I don't need some man's proof. All I know is God prepared a fish. He swallowed Jonah. God's hand was on it all. And that's exactly all that we need to know. So there are two great wonders. Number one, the first great wonder is that he could actually live in the stomach of a, of a fish for three days. Number two, even greater, I think, is the spiritual wonder. And that is that a Hebrew preacher can go and preach to a city like Nineveh and have the results that it had. More on that in just a minute. But let's talk about Nineveh for just a minute. Nineveh was the London of Jonah's day, by the way. It was built upon uh, the spoils of war. It wasn't some small little place. In fact, it had over, we know that because the Bible says at least it had that. It had at least 120,000 inhabitants. What else? It had walls that were 100 feet high. We're not talking about some little village. And by the way, ancient cities like this, especially those that were built upon by the spoils of war, they were either walled cities or they were fenced cities. And the reason for that is it was for protection so the enemy couldn't come in and take over, right? One historian said that the walls of Nineveh at 100 feet were so thick that two chariots would be able to ride side by side on top of the wall all the way around. Big place. Little old Hebrew preacher preaching the power of the word of God. What else? Inside were parks, gardens, and pasture lands. Now I'm going to tell you, I can't read pasture lands. I can't read pasture lands in the text. Let me tell you why I think it had to be. Okay? They didn't grow a lot of alfalfa back in those days. They didn't have alfalfa hay, bales everywhere. They had to graze. And the Bible says not only was there 120,000 uh, 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 people living there, but there were also animals. In fact, God said, and much cattle. So the cattle had to graze somewhere. So no doubt, there were pasture lands. What else? It was a big place. It was called the city of three days journey. Now, I have a number of different Bibles in my office. I have a book that is 27 translations of the New Testament. I have some other translations too and other different Bibles. I have a study Bible though. And my study Bible, interestingly, when it comes to this phrase, and the Bible says it was a city of three days journey, 
Somebody that wrote in that study Bible, a little footnote there said, we don't know what this means. Not so fast. I think you can. Did a little research about that. And by the way, a, a three days journey didn't necessarily, one historian said, didn't necessarily mean the size by way of diameter and circumference, which is told about 60 miles. That's what it was in Nineveh. But it said the phrase, a three days journey, represented how long it would take to visit all of the chief places of interest in the city. Like, for example, Beirut. It was said that Beirut was a city of three days. In other words, it would take three days to visit all of the principal points of interest in the city. Okay? Again, by the way, again, this really doesn't matter. Whether it's a city of three days, uh, talking about the diameter and circumference, or whether it was uh, that it, uh, whatever it was, or the three days to, to visit all the principal points of interest, it really doesn't matter. But in the words of my father-in-law, that's free. There's no charge on that. But I think that's of interest, and I did read that. All I'm saying is, here's the point. It's a very big place. And here comes a Hebrew preacher. One man said like this, By a stern cryptic message of repentance, universal panic was at once produced. A scholar said, We can almost picture in our mind's eye Jonah's countenance as he must have had an expression of desperation getting ready to preach like a man that was raised from the dead. His face doubtless shone like Moses. His eyes flashed. His brow knit, his lips trembled, and he shouted those famous words. And by the way, eight English words, only five words in the Hebrew, and here they are. Here's his sermon. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I got to tell you, about, I don't know, over 15 years ago, I was talking to a brother, a young brother. And sometimes young people, um, they get real curious and they try to reason stuff out and come up with various ideas. And this young man came to me and he said, you know what? There's no way that's all he said. He must have said a whole lot other. He must have really preached. To get that kind of result, he must have preached big sermons. Why can't we just read the Bible? This is what it says. He said this, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's what he said. Eight English words, and incidentally, in Hebrew, only five. Five words. He was surcharged with the thunderings of divine oratory, one said. One prefers to think of Jonah as uttering these words as a stern preacher with a boldness that's worthy of a Nathan. Or of an Apostle Paul whose burning truths withered hostile hearts. Or of a John the Baptist who repeated his prophetic call. Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He spoke these words, very few words, and the results were electric. And then Jonah decides that's not good. Now I'm going to tell you, as a preacher of the gospel... There is nothing in the world greater than preaching a sermon and having somebody respond to it, to respond to the gospel. In the Philippines, we had 91 baptisms this last trip over three weeks. 
We had 30 baptisms the last Sunday we were there. And when I think about that, I think about the results of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. It's not us. It's the power of the word of God. And we have the power. We have God's power in the hands of man. That's in the word of God. And we take that to the lost. But I'm going to tell you something. You know what happens a lot of times in our country? We preach everything. We preach our guts out and sometimes don't, receive, don't see any results at all. Times have changed. I get it. I know that. I know people have it too good. I know people think that heaven on earth is when you just happen to have some good stuff happening in your life. I get it. And I understand about the lack of interest in certain places. I get that too. But I can't imagine what it would be like to preach an eight Hebrew word sermon and have an entire city repent. An entire city. And they do. And all of a sudden, Jonah's mad. God said he would not do it. God said he would relent. God said he would not punish them. And Jonah is mad. He is angry. And he says, God said, do you do well to be angry? And you know what he does? We know what he does. He leaves the outskirts of the city. He goes up high. And he sits down on a hill. And God provided a vine that grew up over him. And we know that. Covered him. Then God sent a worm. Killed the vine. Right? Killed the vine. Now he's mad again. And God says to Jonah, he says, do you do well to be angry? He said, you have more compassion for a vine that you did nothing to produce than 120,000 inhabitants that don't know their right from their left and the innocent children and all of the animals and you have a greater compassion for that vine. So what can we learn? Well, first of all, you can break down this in summary, this story of Jonah in four sentences, four statements with four chapters. Number one, running away from God. That's what he did in chapter one. When he's praying in the belly of that great fish, you could say that's running to God. That's chapter two. Number three, and uh, he's running with God. He goes and he preaches to Nineveh and does exactly what God said. But then when God decided, I'm not going to destroy them, uh-oh, uh, running ahead of God, chapter 4. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. So what can we learn? And by the way, you really can't do justice to an Old Testament story if you don't give it a practical or a current application. There is a current application here. So all the history and all the stories done, let's get the application. Here it is. Lessons learned from the story. Number one, you can't run from God. You can't. You can't do it. In Acts 17 and 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. What else? Hebrews 4 and 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Also in Jeremiah 23 and 24. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him? Says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Says the Lord. You know, I'll tell you something. 
in our life, and I'll just use it on me, in my life, there's two beings, there's two people that always know the truth about our own personal behavior. There's two you can't fool. And by the way, if you're honest with yourself, it's impossible to fool yourself. If you look at the facts and you're honest with yourself, it's impossible to fool yourself. So I'm talking about a guy that is not fooling himself. And you know what? I know more about you, me than you will ever know. Tina probably knows more about me than anybody in the world, but she doesn't know as much about me as I know about me. And you know what else? There's somebody else. And that's God. And that's all that matters. You've heard me over the years say this statement. I believe it. I believe it to be true. That who we really are, who we really are, is best determined by the way that we look, by the way that we dress, by the way that we act, by the way that we behave, and by the way that we talk in places where, number one, we either are not known or in places where we feel the most comfortable. When you let your hair down. Right? That's really you. And if it's not what it ought to be, God knows. You can't fool God. You can't. The poet one time wrote this. You can fool the general public. You can be a subtle fraud. You can hide your little meanness, but you can't fool God. You can advertise your virtues. You can self-achievement laud. You can load yourself with riches, but you cannot fool God. You can criticize the Bible. You can be a selfish clod. You can lie, swear, drink, and gamble. But you can't fool God. You can magnify your talents. You can hear the word applaud. You can boast yourself somebody. But you cannot fool God. The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. What do we learn from the story? We learn you can't run from God. He's everywhere. Number two, what else can we learn? We learn this. It is dangerous. Let's never do this. It's dangerous to have a sectarian spirit. Now, if you look up the word sectarian or sect, you're going to talk about being divisive or, in other words, making a sect or a faction of yourself and so forth and so on. And that's not how I'm using this word. There's a second definition about this word, and it means bigotry. It means racist. It means bitter and hateful. It means all that stuff. Don't ever have a bitter, sectarian, hateful spirit. What did Jonah do? Can't even imagine this. All the universal panic. All the repentance. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he, began, he became angry. You know, I don't know why. Maybe it was racism, I don't know. But really what he did is he possessed the same spirit that the elder brother of the prodigal possessed. And by the way, we always call the younger brother the prodigal because he left. Do you know that's not why he's the prodigal and that's not what the word means? The word prodigal means wasteful. And the elder son, he was wasteful too even though he didn't leave. 
Now, in that, in that story, we understand what that is. The Father's house represents the church. The Father represents God. And the one that left represents a backsliding Christian who leaves for a while. Okay? But the older son, he was wasteful too. He was a prodigal. He just didn't leave. You know what he had? He had a hateful, bitter, terrible, sectarian spirit. He goes to his father and he says, after the son had come back, and he came to himself, and he comes to the father, and he, and he says before the father, Father, I'm not worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your hired servants. We all know the story. And before he can get all the words out, when he said, first of all, he said, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, and I'm no more worthy to be called your son. And the Bible says that the father fell on his neck. He embraced him, and he restored him, killed the fatted calf and all that. You would think that your brother might be happy about that, right? No. No, he's mad. He's mad. And he said, wait a minute. He tells his father, I've never left. You didn't kill the calf for me. I've never left. You know what the father says? It was meet that we should be merry and be glad for this. Thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. We make a practical application of this, okay? Years ago in another state, I was asked to go, and that's what evangelists do. One of the things that we do is we help to set in order the things that are lacking, and that's what we do. By way of edification, evangelism, all that, but we are sometimes called in to help with an issue, and I was asked to help with an issue in another state. There were some people that had made some confessions, and some others, just a couple, they said, no, wait a minute, no, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. Don't you understand? If God accepts it, we must too. We cannot require of someone more than God requires. What does God require to be forgiven of your sins after you're a member of the Lord's church, after you're a Christian? Repentance, confession, and prayer. So when repentance, confession, and prayer is had, we have to accept that. We do. This brother didn't want to do that. He didn't want to accept that. Jonah had more compassion for a plant than innocent children of Nineveh. And finally, I love this. I love this. This is the third thing. God will relent when man is willing to repent. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. It says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build and plan it. If it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said that would benefit them. That's a wonderful blessing that when man repents, then God can change his mind. And that's certainly what God does. Why would we study a subject like Jonah? Why would we make a point about Jonah? Why would we do that? In conclusion, let me talk about some specific things now in closing. In closing, of why this story is a benefit to every one of us right now. All of us. Here it is. 
By the way, the least likely candidates are also those that may be converted. The least likely candidates might be converted. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Then in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of his God. So we learn by way of lessons from this story that the least likely candidates may be converted one day. Can't have a sectarian spirit, can't have that mind, and you can't feel like that you can ever run from God. So in closing, in closing, the story of Jonah is of value to preachers. Never prejudge an audience. One little quick story, just a really encouraging story. And it fits this. Years ago, where I was out helping some young men learn how to knock doors in Oakdale. And I had about 12 or so of these young men. I'm going to tell you something. There was a young man, and he had tattoos everywhere. This guy looked, in today's, I guess, a picture of what today would be. He looked like he was a, a hardened guy. I don't know, maybe just got out of prison. And I remember that one of those young boys, I'm kind of afraid to go talk to him. I don't know what to do. He's a little scary over there. So I said, I'll do it. Do you know what happened? I got across the street. He heard the, he heard the name Church of Christ in our discussion, and he began to cry. He said, I was raised in the church. I was baptized for the remission of my sins as a young man, and I have lived a hardened life, and I know it's wrong. I need somebody to help me get back. Don't you see? We can't prejudge an audience and think whether or not they're going to be interested or not. We just preach the gospel. We can't do that. We can't prejudge. And something else, too. Preachers can't shirk their responsibility of taking the gospel to everybody. So it's a value to preachers. What else? It's a value to all Christians, too. Don't ever have a selfish, sectarian spirit. Spirit. What else? It's a value to sinners, too. That God loves them, but destruction is coming. But here's the benefit. Here's the good news. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, salvation is available wherever there is true repentance and true obedience. What a great story. What a great story. First thing you have to do is obey the gospel. Have you done that? Have you obeyed the gospel? If you're here and you've never obeyed the gospel, this is how you obey the gospel. You come believing in Jesus. You repent of your sins. You confess the name of Jesus Christ and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then you are baptized for the remission of sins. You contact the blood of Jesus and you rise to walk in newness of life. That is how you obey the gospel. That's the first thing you have to do. If you're a sinner lost in the world, you've got to obey the gospel in order to be saved. What else? You've got to live a Christian life. And you can't think that you could just run from God and do whatever you want to do. We have to all live a Christian godly life. Is that you today? Are you here and you've never obeyed the gospel? You can become a child of God. But maybe you have. Maybe there are things in your life that are not what they should be. The Bible says to repent of those things, confess those things, and we will pray with you and for you. And God will forgive and restore. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ 
at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.